Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. On the point of moral suasion, I'll read this excerpt here. Um, the author's right quote, the combination of controlled interest rates, capital controls, directed credit, I'm not exactly sure what directed credit is, so maybe you can tell me, and persistent positive inflation rates is still a mechanism for reducing domestic government debt in the world's second largest economy, China. More broadly, we document how in the post-crisis debt-laden environment, financial repression has once again resurfaced in its many forms among the advanced economies through a variety of regulatory change, I'm sorry, regulatory changes, implicit or explicit, nominal interest rate ceilings, and in some cases, capital controls and quote-unquote moral suasion to induce domestic institutions to hold more government debt. Um, so that was kind of laying out the different forms of financial repression. And I think the paper goes, goes on to detail them more a little further. My question was on, well, one, directed credit. Maybe if you, could, if you know what that is. I don't exactly know what that is. Offhand, I so I think I know what it refers to. In either either way, it's an important term to go over, uh, an important concept to go over, which is when the government can uh, incentivize lending to certain for certain purposes more mm. so than others. So, for example, in theory, you could put a tax on lending for certain things. Let's say I want to open a liquor store. There might that might be they they could mm. make they could add frictions to do that. Okay. Or if it, let's say when. Uh, U.S. veterans were coming back from World War II. Part of the GI Bill was that you know they so they they put them through college and things like that. But then they also gave them loan guarantees if they want to like buy a house, for example. And so they didn't outright give them the money to buy a house, right. but they would would backstop loans to them, and so they would make their loans basically risk free for a bank to lend money to, and therefore they would effectively lower the cost of credit because they they judged that. And most people, of course, agreed at the time is they judged that as a useful, um, you know, a societal good, right? Uh, okay. for, for those people to be able to buy homes cheaply, um, and so directed credit. Uh, I think that's what it refers to. And if not, it, like I said, it's still an important concept to go over, where where the government uses the fact that it can 
print money and backstop loans or yeah. in theory add frictions to loans in order to you know make it easier for certain for certain groups to, to to borrow money cheaply and so that goes back to the cantillion effect of who gets access to cheap credit who does not right and so and partly which, it's based on how yeah and which industries benefit too right because you can direct exactly the, yeah yeah cheap yeah credit to build a house but maybe not to build a liquor store so exactly yeah. yeah you want you want veterans to have houses but you you know let's say you don't want liquor stores or you're in the middle of a war and you want to say okay we're going to pay up front go you know we're going to we're going to do various loan guarantees to go build industrial facilities because you know we got to make airplanes we got to get commodities uh let's say you have an energy crisis and you say okay uh we're going to backstop uh loans to energy companies yeah. um and so you, you can imagine how this can be used for good or ill depending right. on what the what the you know what society is structured around yeah well there, there introduces a lot of ambiguity here too for politicians and rhetoricians to say what's good for society versus not and it might actually be good for them or their buddies or their pocketbook rather than good for society um but yes important concept on the moral suasion component um it seems like so i guess the 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 common denominator between all these modes of financial repression is getting domestic institutions to hold more government debt um i'm sorry maybe that was specific to the moral suasion piece maybe i'm, I'm reading this wrong but so it the incentive here is basically government is trying to create if we just focus on moral suasion they're trying to do this guilt trip patriotic slant if you will on getting institutions to hold more government debt which is to create more reservation demand for government debt and give it more economic longevity, right? Or more liquidity or runway, whatever you want to call it. Is that correct? Is that basically the approach that's being used here? I mean, why else would they want domestic institutions to hold more government debt? It just, it's to extend the solvency of the government basically, right? Yeah, basically it keeps their rates low while minimizing how much they have to outright print to buy it. And so, for example, if all they do, if if they run out of natural buyers and they want to hold interest rates, let, let's say you're Japan and you have 250% government debt to GDP, you can't let interest rates go very high. Otherwise, you're going to be outright insolvent. <laughs> and so you say, okay, we're going to hold interest rates near zero. Uh, nobody wants to hold these bonds. So we're going to have the Bank of Japan buy them all. Uh, that's that's going to be more prone to inflation or in the long run, potentially hyperinflation. If there's no other buyers for those and they're just literally outright printing money. And so you say, okay, how can we slow that down? How, how can we create some actual buyers for these bonds? And so you can say, okay, well, all pensions have to own, you know, for their own safety, you can say they all have to own 20% of their assets in, in Japanese bonds. Or you can say, you know, banks have to own 20% of their assets in, in bonds. And then you know, to the extent that you want to get the public involved, that's obviously harder because, again, the number of enforcement points. But let's say in World War II, you'd have war bonds. You'd say, okay, it's literally if you want to help us win the war, buy these bonds. Um, and and so that's a way for, um, you know, people could contribute to the war and help keep financing costs low. And, of course, it depends on where they fell on that. You know, they, they, they'd uh -huh. lose money, but, you know, people can say, well, at least they won the war. You know, but that that gets basically you're relying on that patriotic duty, yeah. and and again it goes back to the the more 
desirable your society is, the easier that is to do because mm-hmm. you say, well, we want to win the war versus if you're, you know, if you're on the other side of that right. and there's maybe more people that are questioning the ethics of the war, if you're the aggressor or you're, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're not in the truth, mm-hmm. that's going to be harder to, to get people to buy into those bonds. Uh, and so that's going to be much harder to, to do. This is back to that, just creating captive audiences, right? Or to put, to force pensions or endowments to be 20% invested into government bonds that then gives them a channel to uh, implicitly default through some of those um, capital pools, right? So they can basically tax them. To, what, what was it called earlier? The financial repression tax? That this gives them some surface area to impose that? Yes. And yeah. and part of the um, thought process there uh, when they try to structure these is if they're saying, okay, if we're going to print a lot of money, um, banks are going to benefit from this because their deposit base is going to go up a ton. Right. Um, and, and of course, they, they get a small margin on you know their their deposit base yeah. so if we double the money supply banks are going to be happy because they double the deposits right. um and so they say well since they're getting the benefits we're also going to put a lot of the burdens on them as well to try to balance that out so we're going to say okay you your, your deposits are going up a ton but you have to hold a lot of those assets mm. in our government bonds which we're financial repressing um, right. And so you're you're kind of we're, we're kind of taking back those excess profits that you would have gotten from our money printing, uh, as as you know the banks are near the center of the Cantillon Cantillon effect, yeah. um, and we're going to take some of those back. And so that would be the kind of the the, the you know the the sophistry behind yeah. why them, um, and, and you know it's it's basically much easier to sell the notion that those benefiting from it are going to be the ones repressed than you know, putting that on people that are not benefiting and being repressed because that's the right. worst of all worlds. So yeah, that they, of course, also the, the more sophisticated way of doing it, the less likely you're to get unrest or harsh pushback against your financial oppression plan. The more it seems to make sense to people. I mean, a lot of it's opaque, obviously, yes, but right. to the extent, to the extent that it's transparent, the more it seems like it makes sense and the more, again, that the more desirable that place is to be in, where people like kind of understand what's going on here, the easier it is to do. Versus the more ill-structured it is, the the worst incentives are the more corrupt. If you're literally just printing money and then giving right. it to your buddy, and um, and and there's, you know, there's 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 multiple degrees. I mean, one of the challenges, you know, going back to directed lending was during the the you know, the lockdowns, you did the PPP loans. That was an example of, you know, they would, they would, you know, have these loans to turn into grants. So they use the banking system because the government doesn't have these arms where it can just go out and make, you know, millions of individual loans. So it has to use the banking system. And so it, it, it backs off these loans and eventually forgave the loans. And the problem there is, you know, some people, of course, you know, benefited from them because if you have a restaurant and you're really not allowed to have customers and you're going to yeah. go insolvent because you still right. have to pay your, your your bills that keeps you solvent but there's also there was like literally companies like financial asset managers that apply for and receive those ppp loans they had no plans to lay people off mm. so all that money just goes to the bottom line of the fairly wealthy business business mm. owner and then those get forgiven and that's <laughs> an example of 
you know, very, you know, most people would agree that it's not a good form, right? right. So again, it, the, the further you get away from it making sense to people, the more likely you are to get pushback or questions around, you know, how, or also the more likely you are to get inflation, because if you're just literally, you know, creating money, helicopter the sake money creating, at that point. Yeah. 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 yeah it, yeah, to your broader point, I mean, just shrouding all of this and in increasing nominal values seems to be a really effective illusion. You know, people just think that what I mean, we see it now, right? People got checks for whatever PPP loans or whatever government handouts there were. Well, now we're experiencing the inflation of that. But again, rhetoric out of the White House never says that. It's never like, oh, we, we sent you checks and now there's inflation. It, it blames everything else. And people, yeah. I guess the a general ignorance of all of these topics and, and money itself lets that work, right? It sort of works. People and, at least partially recent, believe it. Yeah. And recency bias. When you have mm. decades of disinflation, you know, we had a number of disinflationary drivers, right? Mm -hmm. Because, for example, we had globalization. So we had the opening up of China and former Soviet Union states to the world, this mm -hmm. big untapped pool of labor. Developed countries could, could you know, Push, push some of their costs onto that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's basically an enhancement of productivity, enhancement of, of organization for the world. No. Um, and so that was a big release valve for inflation yeah. for a long time. Um, also throughout the 2010s, you had, especially in the second half of it, you had commodity oversupply, partly mm -hmm. due to the ramp up of shale oil, which partly was based on cheap credit, basically it's unprofitable oil, but it, it did ramp up and it, it kind of distorted supply and demand. You had slow growth, so you had slow demand growth in part because of how the money system structured. And so we had this period of, of relative disinflation and that, that gave a lot of academics and a lot of economists this recency bias. Um, and I think that they were just, they didn't have the right models for what mm -hmm. causes inflation. And they also mix up base money and broad money. And so they said, well, you know, we did a lot of QE in the 2010s and we didn't really get a lot of inflation. Um, so this won't be inflationary. Um, but of course, there's there's a more direct transmission mechanism uh, when you do, when you do, you know, fiscal stimulus. Right. And to, you can also go back and, and, and ask, you know, was this inevitable to some degree? And you know, back in, in 2019, I was writing like, okay, so are we in a bond bubble? Because, you know, d inflation seems super low right now, but, you know, next crisis, they can just print a lot of money. And because debt's so high, I was, or, you know, for referring to that long-term debt cycle thesis, when you have, you know, when you have 150% debt to GDP and there's some sort of disruption in the economy, they can kind of let things play out. But when they, when they build up 350% debt to GDP in terms of pr private and public debt, mm -hmm. You know the 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 time to insolvency when there's some sort of disruption is much tighter, mm -hmm. and so that you can expect that the response time of money printing is probably going to be faster. Right. Um, and so, one of the things you get in these long-term debt cycles is periods of rising populism. So it's it's the incentive structure around printing, yeah. where, you know, in 2008, 2009. They bailed out a lot of the banks. They recapitalized the banking system, but they didn't really bail out the homeowner. Right. So, yeah. so a lot yeah. of homeowners, so, so homeowners had worse, you had basically socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. Right. Uh, and so that caused, you know, rising wealth inequality, wealth, I, I like to use the phrase wealth concentration mm -hmm. rather than wealth inequality, because we shouldn't mm -hmm. expect wealth to be equal, but 
Right. You know, when you start to get extreme wealth concentration, you have to start asking why or what's wrong or what's causing it. Right. Is it something, is it related to corruption? Is it related to, to things that can be controlled? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had this period of, of, you know, kind of socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. And then so when it, when it came time, you know, when we had that rising populism, that kind of rising stagnation, and then we're have all this debt in the system, then we're impacted by pandemic and then the lockdown response and, and you know, the, the, the tolerance that people would have for a second round of that was almost none. And that's why you right. had things like stimulus checks and t- child tax care credits mm-hmm. where, you know, that's not the thing I'm actually going to freak out about because it's almost like inevitable. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like the least bad form of money printing if you're right. actually going to, it's, so the, the way I describe it is that if you run the numbers, there is something like $6 trillion in money printing in the United States in the past, you know, since the start of 2020. Mm. And it comes out to something like $46,000 per American household. Right. And it's like, how many, you know, how many households, like if you go to household by household, it's like, do you feel like you got $46,000 worth of direct or indirect stimulus? Uh-huh. And it's not really. And it's because they got a token amount. Yes. And then everything else, it went, like I said, those PPP loans that turned into grants, yeah. including for people that didn't need them, wealthy business owners. Right. Uh, it went to corporate bailouts. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you, could, you could have had, you know, if you have companies that face insolvency, it doesn't mean necessarily they get their assets liquidated. It just means that the bondholders take over operation from the equity holders. Mm. Um, and they mm-hmm. could have let that play out for a number of imbe- companies that were, you know, yeah. running, you know, running without kind of a reserve, but they didn't, they bailed them out. Right. And, and so we, we've kind of set up the structure where like, let's say you're an airline, you know, and if you know for a fact in recessions, you're going to be bailed out. Um, there's an incentive then to not hold cash to, to any cash you get, just right. buy back your shares and, and do this. Because if you're, if you're the dumb one that actually holds a lot of cash and the cash right. is not keeping up with inflation, you're, you're losing out on your, you know, your, 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 your competitors are going to take market share and expand right. and be more aggressive. And you're going to be the, the dumb one holding cash. And then when it comes time for, you know, that cash to actually make sense, if your competitors get bailed out and you too, yeah. you're like, why did I hold cash? And so then the incentive structure is not to hold cash. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that it, it's not just the size of the stimulus. It's also where it went to. And one reason, you know, in the, in the 1940s, we had a lot of inflation because of the war spending. Um, but the, the one positive thing you can say about it was that a lot of it, you know, went towards manufacturing facilities, better technologies, right. getting the, getting, you know, the 8 million, something like 8 million soldiers came back and they were sent to technical school or college. So you had a huh. more productive workforce. Yeah. And so actually after that period of inflation, it did, it was kind of like the, if you were described the, what MMT people want to see, that's kind of the best example you mm-hmm. get out of it. Whereas most that, you know, that's kind of the the high bar yeah and then everything else is, is usually a worse form of that usually you have more corruption uh more malinvestment um and a lot of money created without a lot of you know um good coming from it yeah i'm, I'm glad i'm glad you brought up the point about the households because I, I saw similar math it was like forty six thousand per u.s household and then if you pulled each household they probably got what four to six thousand dollars in direct stimulus 
something like that. It would, yeah, mean, it would it would depend. Yeah, they would get yeah. some stimulus checks and then they get child tax credits. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you could say a couple other things, you know, impacted them indirectly to some extent. Yeah. But even even if you're being generous with the highest end estimates, yeah. you call it ten thousand. Right. What happened Less to the other thirty six? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in this idea of all of this government intervention actually inverting timeless economic wisdom, right? Holding cash for a rainy day. That's what cash is, basically your buffer against uncertainty. But if you get this recurrent government intervention that's always bailing you out, then you end up like the airline holding no cash. You end up, you start penalizing prudence ultimately. Like if you're a prudent business operator holding cash, well, your competitors that get bailed out, you as well, they will outcompete you for being less prudent. It just, it's, it's madness. Um, and this actually, and this actually extends internationally as well. And it goes back to the philosophical question of, of was this inevitable based on the order of technologies? Because mm-hmm. let's say you have two countries that are not on friendly terms. And one of them is like, we're going to practice fiscal prudence and austerity mm-hmm. and, and let recessions play out. And the other one's like, no, no, we're going to like shortcut recessions. So let's say there's some sort of, re- some sort of external shock happens. Mm-hmm. There's, both both countries encounter recessions. One of them gets over it quicker because they print money. Mm-hmm. Well, they're at military advantage compared to the other one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at least in the short term, basically long term only works if you actually get to the long term. Yeah. Uh, if the short if the other one prints and buys the commodities, they can actually the funny is they can if some country's doing austerity and another country is not, and they print a lot of money and buy a lot of commodities, right. they can push inflation onto the the country that's you know, trying to be more prudent and be more market oriented right. anyway. Um, and as long and so as they one, have captive audiences and capital controls to restrict people because the people getting inflated would want to get out. Yes. But if they can impose that restriction, then it works. Yes. Yes. And then both, and then both countries end up with inflation. Maybe the one country has more inflation, but they also have more stuff that they got yeah. quickly before that inflation really kicked in. Uh, and so I think that goes back to the question of, you know, out of 200 countries, why don't you see a gold standard today? Why don't you see, you know, the countries doing this? Why, why did no one kind of stick to their guns on this? And it's because the incentive structure of, of the order of technology that we encountered, the fact that commerce moved more quickly than money, yes. just opened up so many both internal country by country arbitrage and then country inter-country arbitrage. Right. So that even, even a group of people that wanted to do the quote unquote right thing would have a hard time doing it. I think there's a, a quote from the, the humorist Jack Handy that goes something like, I can imagine a world with like no no war. Uh, and I can imagine us attacking that world because they never expect it, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I can imagine like this, a country that like stuck to the gold standard this whole time and it was like yeah. super prudent. And I can imagine us like printing money and like buying all the oil and giving them inflation anyway, because right. what are they going to do? <laughs> and and so it, it, it's just the, this environment is, you know, it's kind of, it was asking for it just because of the order of the way the technology developed. And it's unfortunate mm-hmm. in many ways, obviously, um, especially if you were not at the center of the system, if you were not in the United States, if you're not in Europe, if you're, if you're one of the, you know, billions of people living under, you know, half the world lives under authoritarianism, right. according to Freedom House, billions of people live in, in, you know, they have emerging market currencies that every generation or so, or every two generations get hyperinflated. Yeah. Um, and so if you're in those environments, this, the, the fact that it turned out like this is, is terrible. It's, it's both the accident of history and it's the, to some extent, the, the ordering of technology that we encountered and then the game theory that arose around that. 
Yeah, it's a it's a superb point. Um, and I wonder if it's related to another guest of mine made this point with it's in the Twilight of Gold series that fiat currency sort of makes you makes your domestic monetary policy vulnerable to the monetary policy of your craziest neighbor. So yeah. for instance, if you start debasing currency to wage war and you're that honest, austere, free banking society, well, they're probably going to kick your ass because their war chest is the savings of the whole civilization, right? They can hyperinflate basically and confiscate all that wealth to wage war. Whereas your war chest, if you're an honest government, you would just have your own balance sheet, basically. So we, it's weird. There's this weird, I guess, accident of history, as you call it, that somehow commerce outpaced the money. Then we had to, we sped up money, but at the cost of speeding up money, we introduced a lot of counterparty risk, arbitrage risk, yep. whatever you want to call it, the corruption of money. And then that leads to all of this band-aid and duct tape putting all this stuff back together and um man what what a weird what a weird thing we've just been through the past 150 years and are going yeah. through and the whole and the whole petrodollar euro dollar system i know you had jeff snyder on one of your one of your shows yeah um that whole and, he, and he's he's described how clunky that system is i mean it's yeah. just really opaque messy market uh, that arose during and after the Bretton Woods system. And that's in large part just because, you know, so gold had shortcomings of, you know, divisibility, auditability, mm -hmm. and then, as, you know, especially saleability across space. And then fiat, of course, has shortcomings of its, you know, saleability across time, yeah. shortcomings of its auditability, yeah. um, and, 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 you know, just various shortcomings. And so the fact that we could have this, this situation, just this messy, opaque, global market of of you know kind of fractional reserve banking is just an inherent limitation of our money that, mm -hmm. that we we don't have a money that checks off every single box of what we want money to do e right. each type of money just has you know enough of the boxes checked that it's workable as money but it's not perfect as money yeah you know i like the perfect form of money would be like if you could just mentally teleport gold to each other and you know or, or, or and, and never forget your you know your password or let's yes. say a bitcoin and you just you just say had your private key you can never forget it uh and and you just have no limitations with it and of course we can never have perfect money but yeah. you know you, you can have you you can get closer and closer to the platonic ideal of what money is yes. with better technology and so yes. you can to the extent that bitcoin continues to be successful it's a it's a it's closer to the ideal money than gold was assuming it can be, you know, it can hit some sort of critical mass in terms of liquidity and, you know, unstoppability. Right. Uh, you know, it kind of, it gets out of its nation, nation stage right. and into its, you know, you know, basically if it, if it can avoid being killed in the womb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's such a great point. It's almost like the perfect money would have the most frictions to involuntary exchange, whether it's inflation, confiscation, taxation, but minimal friction, minimal frictions to voluntary exchange. So if your country starts inflating your currency and you want to get out of there, you just, or they start being oppressive in whatever way, financially repressive in whatever way, you could just port that money out somewhere else. Um, yeah, really interesting points there. 
What are the odds that Coinbase could blow up? So I haven't dug into their finances in detail, but I would describe an outright blow up as probably unlikely. Oh. But I think that they, you know, you can be certainly crippled. You can be permanently smaller. <laughs> there are a number of crypto crypto companies that are, that are, you know, say the private ones that are having down rounds in terms of valuation. Mm. Um, where they, you know, they might not go bust, but their, you know, their equity is diluted. They're they're smaller, yeah. Um, and so that's a different type of of, you know, blow up. Um, so far, a good thing to see is that Bitcoin companies have gotten through this, um, you know, this this troubled market better than these broad crypto companies. Right. Um, you you weren't seeing like Bitcoin companies put their names on stadiums and. And, you know, you they were much more subdued with their marketing because they're less, you know, just the product kind of sells, it sells itself. Yeah. Um, and they were focused more on utility in general. So less on speculation and more on, on making Bitcoin easier to use and doing more things with your Bitcoin um, rather than just different types of yield casinos. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like kind of some some justice to some extent at least um okay i think we got to page seven roughly okay um what do i want to okay i will read I'm going to read this excerpt from page seven of the document, and then I'll ask you a question about it. So the authors write, through extensive documentation of the regulations covering the financial and external sectors, we also trace out the evolution of quote unquote captive domestic audiences, where these debts are placed, which are an integral part of limiting tax base erosion. Finding high-yield alternatives to government debt, saving vehicles in the era of financial repression was no easy task. Capital controls kept many potential high-yield investment possibilities off-limits, while available domestic alternatives offered even more unattractive yields than government debt. So, again, these... Uh, means of financial repression are basically machinations by which government is externalizing their default onto market actors or, or capital holders. Um, these necessitate, like for the government to be able to perpetrate that, they need to be able to stifle and silo the free flow of capital. So to what extent do you think that is possible in a world where Bitcoin is the dominant money, like how much, I know this is a big unknown, so I'm obviously I'm gonna hold you to it, but how much does Bitcoin's ascendance to dominant money uh, circumvent or otherwise um, make less useful capital controls and these other means of siloing and stifling the free flow of capital? So if Bitcoin gets past the whole critical mass, it becomes widely adopted. I, I think it does make it much harder to do that. And this, it, it, in that sense, it's not unlike other asymmetric technologies of history, right? So for example, gunpowder 
quickly change the utility of castles mm-hmm. um, it, it, compared to what what their use had been for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, land-based defenses were overcome by air, mm-hmm. you know, air, air weaponry. Um, and so there, there's technologies that are asymmetric in the sense that they 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 render obsolete or nearly obsolete older forms of of technology. And right. and then ideally you get technologies that are you know, they asymmetrically favor the defender. So encryption yeah. is a type of that where it's it's much, much harder to try to attack encryption than to use encryption to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what what the, one of the premises that, that Bitcoin is based on. Um, and so uh, at, part of that is even fully, not even fully proven, right? So encryption, mm-hmm. the way the encryption is tested over time is they prove it the best they can, but then they have to let it mature and to see, can it, you know, right. for 10 years, can anything attack this thing? Uh, but you never fully know if if encryption is entirely bulletproof. Um, but yeah, to the extent that 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 technology continues to work fully as expected, and to the extent that Bitcoin, uh, you know, reaches a, a wide level of ubiquity, and that the the people building on it continue to make it easier and easier to use and self custody and transfer, because that's a key important. The, the again, the, going back to gold, the more frictions yeah. that the gold had. The less likely it was to be, you know, not defeated by fiat. Right. And same thing with Bitcoin. The the less frictions there are with Bitcoin, the more likely it is to succeed. And that's why I think the companies working on it are key. This is mm-hmm. not just something, you know, it's not just inevitable. It's not something that just works itself over time. The incentive mm-hmm. structures are aligned. The technology, I think, you know, that it's like the the right technology for the right time is there. All the ingredients I think are there, yeah. but it still has to, you know, the football has to be brought across the the end zone. Right. Uh, and so, but if you get there, um, I, I think that that represents another form of asymmetric technology. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the coercion argument, you can argue so, you know, to, you can argue that government taxes and things like that are coercive, but you can also, and financial oppression is coercive, mm. but you can also argue that if someone's free to leave, Mm-hmm. then it's it's not not coercive or at least it's less coercive yeah and the so power can, to say no kind of delineates right if you have the ability to say no or leave then technically it's not coercive because you have an exit option yeah and so we can describe governance you know governance is like fills vacuums wherever there's like a there's mm-hmm. no governance there's going to be some sort of structure for how how things are handled there at, at yeah. the extreme case if you have ungoverned space you'll have warlords run it right um and it, you know and to the extent that there's government we ideally want ones that we have more control over that are that are given constraints to be more benign yeah um and so for example i'm in a homeowners association they they say you can't have solar panels on your roof and so mm-hmm. uh, I, you know I can say, well, that's stupid. I want to, I want to move out, or I can say, well, that's acceptable. I like the area, and so whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, if you're in a country, um, there's it's much harder to leave. Uh, it'd be more burdensome to leave, and you'd have to find someone else that is willing to accept you. Um, and so, it's for very large countries where people can't just leave. You can, you know, it's arguably unethical to have a lot of constraints on their behavior. Uh, whereas smaller ones, you can say, well, it's kind of this voluntary thing that people are doing. And to the extent that money is more portable and self-custodial, in theory, it increases people's mobility to move around their own assets mm-hmm. and have more selection on where they want to be. And, you know, vote with their feet. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the downsides is potentially that it, you know, basically means that the rich have more mobility than the poor. 
mm-hmm. that's already the case and potentially could be more the case. So, you know, it might just like how gold had externalities that were not necessarily great, there could be some externalities of Bitcoin that, you know, maybe don't work out exactly how we envision mm-hmm. or how we'd hope. But, you know, I still think it's, it's a step change improvement compared to the prior monetary technologies and, and yeah. the prior technologies that just it's inherently more decentralized and i think it's you know like i said it's i would just describe it as the first time where or at least the first time in 150 years where the speed of money as a bear asset is caught up to, to the speed of commerce and so right. that does in theory reduce the arbitrage that can occur between that money and that commerce right yeah that's a, that's a really brilliant point now i'd like to tell you about a great new bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, You have to pay them even more via your deductible, and then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. Do you then think that in a world where it's much harder to ring fence money, the flow of money in particular, this Bitcoinized world, governments would ramp up taxation regulation, capital controls. Well, I guess capital controls don't apply here. Just taxation and regulation on physical or real assets. I mean, they they kind of would necessarily have to shift gears towards things they could they they could they could enforce on, right? So you would think that. Um, the more self-custodial money is and the more private transactions are, the harder it is to tax things like transactions or income. Um, And so you have to tax other things. And, you know, again, there's recency bias. So today we take it for granted that, you know, because of the way money works, it's easy to surveil most types of income because you know we're not really in a cash-based society anymore. Yeah. There's not much, you don't really get much privacy with your transactions. Um, and so it's, it's, it's relatively easy for authorities to determine roughly what someone made and what they owe in taxes. 
um, and, and it to just have more points of enforcement. If you had more privacy technology and more self-custody, um, especially those two together, it does become challenging to determine what someone owes. Let's say there's a billionaire and he's trading cryptos around mm -hmm. and he's doing it, all sorts of technologies that makes it hard to determine. It's very hard for the IRS to determine what he owes. And, and if they th even if they think he owes something, how do you really prove mm -hmm. you know, what, he, what he owes? Um, so if that became widespread, um, you would think that ta taxation would have to shift increasingly towards property, real estate, especially non-mobile property. Um, you could potentially go back to more excise taxes. Basically, the types of taxes that existed in kind of the you know pre-telecommunications phase, where you know excise taxes and property taxes and things like that, um, where you when there's large purchases at point of sale, vehicles, uh, imports. Um, those types of things you'd expect to be the points of, of taxation uh, because they're the ones that are still fairly easy to track and prove and surveil. Mm. So if, <clears throat> if that's the case, then the government has to kind of shift towards these specific, typically immovable assets to tax. Are, I mean, the, I, I just... What I'm thinking here is government would have to shrink to some extent, because even if they if they shifted all of their exactions of tax from if they concentrated all of their exactions of tax to physical and real property today, that would mean the tax rates would be you know very high. Whatever your property, say your property tax goes from three percent to thirty percent, something like that. You're then creating incentives for people to not own that property, or you're lowering valuations and you're incentivizing them into you know this ungovernable monetary property so doesn't that mean that we would expect revenues of governments to shrink just by virtue of this capital control resistant money existing or is that too much of a stretch i think it's a reasonable thesis i, I think if you if you, you can argue that if it's that widespread it is harder for them to be quite as big as they are now, mm. um, especially things like military mm -hmm. endeavors, right? So, so you know, in many many countries, you have fairly high tax rates, but people are relatively happy with it because most of the tax is going back on them. And so, for example, you know, in Japan, you have you know roughly similar tax rates to the United States, but you have very little military spending, so a lot of it goes back into having healthcare be more affordable than we have mm. in the United States. So they they spend less per capita on healthcare than than we spend, despite the mm. fact that they're on average older. Um, so it would come down, I think, to how happy the society is and how unified the society is around the systems they've built versus how polarized they are uh, and mm. how unjust they feel that, that that it currently is, what what their taxes are going to, if they feel like they're getting their money's worth. You could certainly argue that, um, you know, if you're not paying income tax, you know, something like a 10% property tax would seem less insane because just like, right. well, I'm, I'm, all this other stuff's untaxed. So there's a couple points of high taxation. Right. Uh, that was, and that, that would pass on to renters in the form of, you know, even if mm -hmm. you didn't own property, you, you'd effectively be paying your, your portion of tax through your rent because landlords yep. would, would have to raise the prices. Um, so you'd, you'd collect it in that way. Um, so you could still have a decent amount of taxation in that scenario. It just, 
I think around the, the around the margins, certainly, I think it's harder to get those excess ones when, when society feels like they're not getting their money's worth at all, mm. um, because it's easier for them to move something else. And it also, taxes, of course, always shift around incentives or broken money systems always shift around incentives. And so, for example, you know, I've argued that since we have weak money, we, of course, monetize other things. We monetize mm-hmm, the S&P mm-hmm. 500. We just shovel money every month in the S&P 500 because it's like, well, I'd rather own that than own dollars yeah. over 10, 20 year period. Yeah. Um, or you, you you buy a second home to rent out, you monetize housing, which of course is really bad for for people that actually just want to own one primary dwelling. Right. If you monetize it, it makes it harder for them to buy. Yeah. Um, in, in Weimar, Germany, you I mean, right now we're monetizing art, right? So so mm-hmm. art is a store of value. Um, and in Weimar, Germany, they they had this extreme like art monetization. Uh, and then if, and then when it, when eventually that hyperinflation broke, you'd have art values get like cut in half because hmm. there was a certain percentage of the money that was only in there by necessity right? Uh, that, that went back to, to more liquid and better money. Um, in the United States, when gold was banned in the 40s and then, you know, well, the 30s, and then, you know, you had all that inflation in the 40s, you had this huge spike in real estate prices in the 40s because it's like, well, if I'm being financially oppressed, but I'm still allowed to buy real estate, I guess I'll mm-hmm. buy real estate. Mm-hmm. Um and and the money supply allowed all the you know the, the nominal value of that real estate went up quite a bit. So you had asset price inflation, um, and so changes to how money works certainly changes where we want to store value. Mm-hmm. And so if you if if you had more property taxes and more excise taxes, um, yeah, that pro- that would probably restrain things like second homes. It would, it would reduce the monetization of real estate. And we would increasingly just view that as a utility. Mm. Um, and we would, you know, to the extent we want to live there, we're willing to pay it, but, you know, we don't want to have more real estate than we need. Yeah. And I think that would, I mean, in my mind, at least that would be a reversion back to kind of the purpose of government. If it, if we consider it as just being this security mechanism, a security service that's actually protecting you know, property or real, real property in particular, land, you know, borders, territory. Uh, it would seem to make sense that maybe you would just pay based on how much of that footprint you owned that was being protected versus, you know, how much income you're producing and all of this. That, I mean, I guess that does, government does impact that to some extent, but it seems like it gets largely beyond uh, the value that they're creating for entrepreneurs once they start um, getting into their income and assets and things like that versus just paying some kind of like a flat tax on land perhaps um yeah because once they start you know once some percentage of your income is going to like you know sending soldiers over to another continent to do whatever they're doing there you know killing people and building hundreds of foreign bases Mm -hmm. things like that there's this, there's this kind of like rank order of things that people would probably put up less if it was harder to, well, one, if it's harder to dilute money, yeah. and then two, if it's harder to surveil and, and then tax money. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, obviously they'd want police and firefighters and, you know, things like that to protect yeah. their property. And then they, then they want, you know, roads. You can, again, you can have, to, you know, tolls and things like yeah. that. They can collect taxes for them. And then you, you know, maybe some societies still want healthcare. Maybe yeah. they want government health care maybe other ones don't um depending on their culture and, and things like that maybe they you know they vote for it they want it yeah. they get it um 
but very few would say, yeah, let's 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 all pay uh, extra tax this year to go and bomb this other country. Right. And so you, you kind of start going down the list of, of taking out the most malinvestment and get either some some might be more minimal, some might be more moderate. Right. But you'd, you'd probably get rid of the silliest um, uses of government funds. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Just a contraction and overall malinvestment, starting with the most malinvested, which would be warfare, where you mobilize people and capital to go and destroy people and capital. Yeah. Um, great point there. I Okay, so I'm going on to page nine now on the PDF, and this is where they define financial repression actually um and i'll just read an excerpt here this is under the heading the pillars of financial repression the authors write the term financial repression was introduced by edward shaw in 1973 and ronald mckinnon in 1973 subsequently the term became a way of describing emerging market financial systems prior to the widespread financial liberalization that began in the 1980s. And they say, see Agoner and Montiel, Giovanni and DiMalo, they're just referencing some work here. As we document, financial repression was also the norm for advanced economies during the post-World War II period and in varying degrees up through the 1980s. So again, financial repression, governments sequestering these tax bases to exact the revenues necessary to pay off accumulated debts, largely wartime debts. Um, and the authors go on to talk about this thing I thought was interesting, the creation and maintenance of a captive domestic audience. These measures, I think, really highlight the, I guess it's the anti-capitalistic nature of this whole thing. Like, we're a free market or a free economy is premised on this open form of free exchange and people should be able to move their capital and build businesses and let the businesses fail, you know, see which ideas work, you know, which ones succeed in the market, which ones fail in the market. We all learn collectively, we get more productive, we go forward. But this whole thing, this, this whole uh, discharge of this debt structure requires erecting artifice that, that inhibits that it inhibits the free market, it's um, kind of self-defeating in a way. So, yeah, I'd love to just hear your thoughts about this. It really seems like in this sort of, a lot of what the government's saying they're doing is supporting capitalism or supporting free trade or supporting the economy or whatever. But in reality, a lot of their measures end up really um, attacking it, attacking the market itself. And um. I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say here, other than it seems to be like a self-defeating effort. One of the, one of the most subtle things is is the is the price controls on money itself, mm. right? So so most people would agree that price controls aren't very effective at, at right. doing what they're doing. Like, so if, let's say you have a spike in oil prices in some state. Let's say there's a state a pipeline broke. They're out of they're out of gasoline, and so gasoline's in short supply. So gasoline in that state spikes dramatically. Mm. That that is like a this. A signal to everyone in the nearby states that has yeah. gasoline in one way or another to it incentivizes them to go and bring gasoline to that state. Yeah. And it, it, it's uncomfortable because it means that 
people who maybe the rich people in the state can afford gasoline and, and poor people can, or it means mm-hmm. that people that absolutely need it, you know, hospitals are just going to pay whatever they need, whereas, mm-hmm. a, you know, a liquor store might shut down, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever the case. So, so you go, to, go from most important to least important and you go from rich to poor. Um, and so it, in some ways it could feel unjust, but the alternative is if you do price controls in that state and say, okay, no one can charge more than $2 a, a gallon for gasoline, then it, it reduces the flow of external gasoline into mm-hmm. that state because it reduces the incentive and the bigger the gap you know if, if gasoline goes to twenty dollars a gallon the further states away are still incentivized to come so mm-hmm. that the bigger that gap gets the stronger the incentive is and the wider the number of entities around that region are to come and bring gasoline and fix mm-hmm. that and 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 get that you know resolved by by market forces mm-hmm. and so price controls have one of those things where you can use rhetoric to make them sound good, but then in the long run they 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 backfire. And we've been in an environment, um, again, I would I would argue in large part due to the order technology where we have price fixing of money itself, and mm-hmm. it's it, it, it's actually really hard to measure all the impacts that that has throughout society because we can direct things. Um, and then the other argument, uh, you know, going back to how much is market forces versus government. You can argue that to the extent that a government is voted in, um, mm-hmm. that they that they're basically voted in to do some longer range things that is hard for individual businesses to do, either mm-hmm. because of physical realities or scale. And so, you know, for example, the companies that ran the undersea fiber optics cables, they like went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, the the companies that like dug the English Channel like went bankrupt. And it's like, it's, it's almost like we're luckily they didn't know that ahead of time, or they wouldn't have done it because obviously those things were that, that infrastructure is really hard, especially massive infrastructure is really hard for private entities to do because it's at such a scale and these business cycles, you know, kind of last five, 10 years. And then if your if your thing takes 30 years to pay off, how do you calculate that? And so you just decide not to do it. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, you can argue that one of the most, one of the best examples of public funding was what Eisenhower did in the 50s, which was the interstate highway system. He, he mm-hmm. learned from his experience as a general that, you know, this, this, this is something that we're actually, you know, it, it's hard for individual companies to do at this scale. We can do it and we can, you know, it's, it's a shared resource that'll make all private businesses more productive now. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the, the platonic ideal of government where you say, okay, there's, there's certain things that don't pay off for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and there or that there's a scale that there's almost no entity that's willing to take on that risk and so we can pool our risk together to do something mm-hmm. and so that w- that's the steel man case for for that purpose and there are really good examples of it. of course the, the it's a it's power corruption so when you have that capability it's easy for you know it's it's easy over time for you know the first and to, you know, the first rulers to to you know they get voted in to use that power well just and later yeah, then over yeah. time you get other other presidents that misuse that power, other congresses that misuse that power, and it degrades over time mm-hmm. and it frictions build up and corruption builds up. And then of course, you know, you pass these like two thousand page laws that are just filled mm-hmm. with like pork and filled yeah. with like, okay, you want this once, you know, they want to pass say child care tax credits. And they're like, well, like I want my museum and my jurisdiction funded for you know this exhibit or you know th- like this all these like little details that are sewn on it's like well i want to build tanks in my jurisdiction that the generals don't even want they said they don't even want more tanks but i want to give my workers in my state 
you know, more jobs. jobs tank. Yeah. So, so, so we're going to add that. And so that's where you get the, the more gra the graft, the, yeah. what, is, what is often the, the realistic form of government, but, but that, you know, there's, there's still a case for voted in officials trying to do long range things. And it just, the question becomes, what are the constraints on them? How to limit those constraints so that they're actually solving the handful of problems that might be hard for, for private businesses to do rather than the, the, the bigger scale of corruption and wars and graft right. and things like that. Yeah. I mean, the real, I mean, perennial problem is once you give an authority that power that may be used justly in the beginning, as you said, how do you ever take it back? You just, right. Then what's the old saying? There's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. It's like once it's yeah. in place, it's just there forever. How much, so to double click on that infrastructure point that private enterprise has a harder time with these large scale infrastructure projects. And I think you said that's kind of a calculation problem. How much do you think of that is due to the fiat exacerbated business cycle itself that they can't engage in super long-term economic planning because we've, we've amplified the, the uncertainty of the business cycle through currency debasement? Do you think in a world where, again, this hypothetical platonic ideal world of say Bitcoinized world, you know, you in theory would have much uh, more predictable or less violent business cycles. Do you think that would en enable private enterprise to engage in longer term planning for larger infrastructure projects? It's challenging to say for sure, because we, we, we always have some mix of private enterprise and, and governance. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, governance is, it fills in vacuums wherever it finds it. So yeah. when you go back in history, there's always this, this mix of private enterprise and, and then either authoritarian government or voted in government, which is, you know, another, another will of the people. Um, and even if you look at say free banking you, eras, um, you still have cycles. Um, mm. And so it, you could argue that it's, it's, it's just, one is the cycle, it's the calculation problem. And then two, it's also the scale. So there's economies of scale that come with, you know, being able to plan 20 years ahead or, mm -hmm. or, or be able to do something at a scale that's, that's very hard to coordinate um, at anything smaller than, say, a government level or, you know, maybe the, the biggest three companies in the, in the country, right? So, so there's a, a very small number of entities that might be able to do something that that's you know particularly hard to do or particularly just capital intensive to do or that involves things like where to place roads and so you need some sort of organized coordination of like where is this going to be who owns this land and and to go from there so i think that some of it's intrinsic um but that it, but that by influencing the price of money and by you know the Fed always overshoots, for example, central banks overshoot, they undershoot, they overshoot. So mm -hmm. they, they exacerbate in many ways, the business cycle. Um, and then they, they, they tighten liability, they encourage debt accumulation. Mm -hmm. And then they, when it gets out of hand, they tighten that debt accumulation. Um, and so it, 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 they, they encourage, it's like they encourage people to over drink and then they give them the keys. Right. And then, so, <laughs> right. so, so, so that part doesn't mix well. And, and if anything, it, it, you know that that's not a good mix, uh, but I, some of it I think is intrinsic, um, and that's why I mean one reason I like Bitcoin is because 
it's ace it's it's you know encrypted money is asymmetric in the sense that it gives individuals more choices more more you know self-sovereignty for lack of a better word mm-hmm. um and then they have more say on the governance that they want and so you know I, I don't always know the right mix of of governance. Mm-hmm. You know, I might have my own opinion or not another opinion, and I think it. I don't often. I think there's not one right answer. You know, the right government for Norway might be a different right government for Singapore. Might be a different right government for the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that the more empowered individuals are, the more they have. You know, the ability to live in the region that they want to live in, um, and. I especially think about that, and again, going back to the fifty percent of you know over half the world lives in authoritarianism um, and and bad money systems. And so to the extent that technology can go out and give people more you know kind of self-control of their finances, which then increases their options, you know they still have there's still physical constraints that they have to deal with. Yeah. but at least at least you know having financial resources increases your options and your probability of of being able to shape the world around you the way mm-hmm. you want, and then they can, you know, either shape their local area more than the way they want, or they can move out of that area. Um, and so, I, I there are a lot of good philosophical questions about the role of government and this this kind of dance between private enterprise and governance, and, mm-hmm. and the fact that just you might have a platonic ideal of something, and then the reality of that thing. Or just the the reality of incentives and how human behavior works and how governance just kind of fills in vacuums, um, but that technology that at least limits it or at least empowers people to choose the form they want is something I support. And then, you know, I don't always know the right answer, but if people choose it, right, you know, I'm, I'm less, I'm less, you know, I'm like, who am I to argue? Yeah, just. Um, technology that enables government to be constituted more by market forces rather than authoritarianism, right? The opinion of yes. one guy or guys or yeah. whatever it may be. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I think that would be pretty universally attractive for m- most people in the world, um, except those few authoritarians, perhaps. Um, it's a great point there. I want to read one more excerpt and maybe we can close on this because then we'll, we jump into a whole nother category. So still under this pillars of financial repression and defining financial repression, the authors write the creation and maintenance of captive domestic audience of a of a captive domestic audience that facilitated directed credit to the government. This was achieved through multiple layers of regulations from very blunt to more subtle measures. And they enumerate these ABCD. A, capital account restrictions and exchange controls orchestrated by a forced home bias in the portfolio of financial institutions and individuals under the Bretton Woods arrangements. B, high reserve requirements, usually non-renumerated as a tax levy on banks. Among more subtle measures, C, prudential regulatory measures requiring that institutions, almost exclusively domestic ones, hold government debt in their portfolios. Pension funds have historically been a primary target for this. And finally, D, transaction taxes on equities, 
also act to direct investors towards government and other types of debt instruments. Oh, and there's an E, prohibitions on gold transactions. Um, oh, I'm sorry, this last point's important too. They go on to say, other common measures associated with financial repression aside from the ones discussed above are A, direct ownership, as is done in China and India, of banks or extensive management of banks and other financial institutions, as is done in Japan, and B, restrict, restricting entry into the financial industry and directing credit to certain industries. That might be the directed credit we talked about earlier. One of the, I mean, key points I take from this is that, again, there's a difference in degree, but not kind between China and the U.S., right? Whereas we often tend to think like, oh, no, we're the United States. We're free market capitalists. We do all these things totally different. China's a whole another animal. You know, they have this whole other, they're built on an entirely different philosophy and a totally different model of statism. But that's not, in fact, the case. I mean, these are both models of statism, business models of statism, but one's using different, more aggressive means, perhaps, and one's using less aggressive or less um, obvious means, perhaps. But the, the difference is in degree, not kind. I think that was a key, key insight for me. Um, do you think about that in the same way? Like, how, how do you, I know you just said that there's no right government for anyone anywhere, but um, what, what is, the, it almost seems like an ideological possession, perhaps, where people think, oh no, we're the United States, we're fundamentally different than China. But that's, that doesn't appear to me to be true. I would just like to hear your thoughts about that. So I agree. I think there's a, every, every, pretty much every economy we look at, other than maybe the most extreme cases, is a, a mix of private market and then some sort of government overlay onto that. Uh, which in the ideal case represents, you know, some sort of safety net or voted overlay on what people want in addition to their commerce, mm -hmm. rather than all, you know, kind of top-down given. Um, and yeah, go back to the point of that there's no right government. I would phrase that as there are objectively right or wrong answers mm -hmm. uh, to government, but then there's also areas that there's multiple local high, you know, there's multiple local maxima. Mm. Um, and it, it's hard to, to you know determine uh, which ones are best, and that they might just be due to geographic differences, cultural differences, population size differences, uh, natural resources differences. Um, and so I, the analogy you can use is nutrition, right? Mm. There's there's there there are objectively wrong things to eat. You know, if you eat poison, <laughs> it's bad for you. If you eat tons of processed foods, it's bad for you. But then you you know due to your genetics or due to some details about you or your whether how athletic you are or what you want to mm -hmm. do with your body um there might there might be different diets that are hard to say which one's better right um because there's multiple right answers there's multiple wrong answers but there's not necessarily one right answer for every everybody mm. in the world so it's a and matter of fitness it like it's um fitness in the darwinian sense right there's going to be yes. different more fit and less fit governments for different yeah. cultures or areas. Yeah, there are multiple. I think there are multiple right answers, multiple wrong answers, um, and there's a spectrum of of ones that are hard to say which one's better. Mm. Um, and most economies we know of have basically, you know, you need to be able to be if they're successful in any way. Basically, they have the ability to start a business, operate relatively freely, mm -hmm. um, and then inevitably there's some degree of of higher coordination that. That determines what are what are the laws and what are 
you know, what are some of the some some of the, the basic rules we're going to go by, and then you know, to the extent that they incorporate fiscal spending, there's usually some sort of shared pool of fiscal spending that they do, and some of them have that a pretty large percentage of their economy, mm-hmm. and some of them have it a pretty small percentage of their economy, but it varies. Mostly, it's a matter of degree um, rather than kind. Um, with political systems itself, you can get a somewhat of a different kind. I mean, if, you know, there's a difference between a, a place mm-hmm. where they just don't vote versus a place right. where they do vote. For, and then, but even among places you do vote, there's there can be a spectrum where, you know, your vote is fairly countered versus places. You know, a lot of a lot of countries vote, but then, you know, there there's ways to manipulate the votes. Right. And so Kim Jong-un is voted into office, but we all know it's not a real vote. Right. right. So <laughs> so there are differences in kind, but then there's also a spectrum of how how fair and free are those elections uh, and how widespread is the voting. I mean, in, in a lot of societies, you know, including a lot of American history, you know, white propertied men could vote. Um, and, and the same thing was true for ancient Greece. I mean, we, we, mm-hmm. we think of those as the early republics, but it's like they had huge slave slave populations, um, and it was basically the wealthy would vote. Um, so even among voting cultures, there's a spectrum. I mean, how old are you? Right. What are what are the what are the qualifications to vote? Um, and, and and so there are, I think, different answers for that. Um, kind of over over just at, and technology changing technologies determines in some ways what what things work better than others so you could argue that for example literacy and, and communication systems were a key ingredient to make a republic possible to operate right um, yeah and and so and then you can argue that to the extent that if if money catches up in speed to commerce that 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 opens up new forms of of governance that you know, or makes governance that didn't work before more workable. Right. Um, and, and so we, technology is always an ingredient into what types of, you know, in the real world, what types of governments actually exist and, you know, are fit relative to others. Yeah. If you had an illiterate society, you couldn't have voting at all, really, right? Because how or it, they at least could not go into a voting booth and choose on from something written. So that makes a lot of sense that, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of considerations. The, the, I guess the connection maybe between that I was drawing here was specific to the financial repression in that maybe I could say like this, that all the governments in this study at least are financially repressive, engaging in some form of financial repression. It's just on a spectrum, again, few different types, but there's also more extreme and less extreme forms of that. And um, yeah, I get just the idea that governments in general, this seems maybe part and parcel to their function is that they have to be repressive to some extent. It's, a, it's almost in the nature of the word itself, right? To govern or to regulate, right? To not, to not let something just flow freely, even a, a I'm thinking of like a governor on a car, right? Where it limits your top speed and you can remove yes. the governor and <laughs> go faster. But exactly. You know, is that good? Is that and, bad? I don't know. And it, you know, it's, it, it both limits, but also, I mean, let's say someone has someone else as a slave and the government comes in and says, you can't do that. So mm-hmm. it, it can, it can, it can technically give freedom, but also yeah. in many cases takes it away. And right. going back to the financial oppression analogy or, or the, the, the kind of the focus that we're on is that the more those repression systems 
can be tied into a narrative that makes sense to people, the easier they are to enforce because uh, they're less okay. frictioned. Yeah, and an, right. exa an example would, would be making banks have higher reserve requirements. Mm. And the reason, so both of those were enacted, right? So in the 40s, if you go back to a time, if you look at the percentage of bank assets that are in treasuries in the United States over a very long period of time, you would see that the, the highest points are right now. And then prior to this time, the 1940s and, and shortly thereafter, the 50s, and which are the two times where federal debt as a percentage of GDP was well over 100%. And those, they also occurred in like the decades after major financial crises. So going into the subprime mortgage crisis, banks had a very, very small percentage of their assets in treasuries uh, and a very high percentage in housing loans that, that mm -hmm. blew up. And so they had very little margin of error when they blow up. Um, you know, partly that was encouraged by, you know, the Fed cut rates to near zero. They, they encouraged mm -hmm. all this speculation in real estate. And then you had Wall Street collateralize the loans. So you broke mm -hmm. the incentive structure of keeping the mortgage on your own balance sheet and, and making them opaque. So it was hard to manage risk. And then you had credit rating agencies stand to a AAA. So you had, you had multiple uh, public and private sectors kind of merge into cronyism and make this like, you know, bound to blow up. Right. But going into that crisis, you had, you know, banks had very little treasuries. Um, and then they say, okay, well, they all blow up. We had to recapitalize them now. And so now we're going to have a, a rule that they have to have at least, you know, X percentage of their assets in bank reserves and treasuries. Um, and on the surface, that makes sense. You, you, you say, okay, we don't want to bail these things out again. So we're going to make them hold more. But by extension, they're also monetizing government debt more. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's like one of those things you kill two birds with one stone. And few people are going to object to that. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. it, you're not saying we're going to make banks hold more treasuries because we need the financing. Instead, right. they're saying we're going to make banks hold more treasuries so that they're safer. <laughs> and you go back to the to the 40s. The last time they, they actually even higher treasuries back then as a percentage of their assets. And of course, that came in the aftermath of the 1929 crash. Um, that's when they created FDIC insurance, and then that's when they put in the Glass-Steagall Act, and then they said, okay, investment banks are separate than 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 you know normal banks um, and that banks have to hold a lot of reserves and treasuries. And so when they tie those narratives together, that's how they make this work with somewhat less coercion, with, with, with less right. extreme coercion, because it, to the extent that people buy into it and it makes some sense on some level. Um, but then at, at the end of the day, they always combine it with some stick. And the stick was you can't own gold in this case, right? right? So in the right. States, it's like, you know, you you did a lot of nice things that you know, they're like, hey, like buy war bonds for the country, and hey, we're gonna make the bank safer, and hey, we're gonna. But mm -hmm. then, you know, the 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 kind of the, you know, the unmasking the, the right. more strict form was, we will put you in jail if you own gold, though. Right. So, <laughs> so yeah, this is um, yeah, I guess maybe the unerring hallmark of government action is that no matter what they do it's always for your safety, right? No matter I, everything, right? Everything you just described, whether it's financial or physical or a mask mandate, it's always, no matter what they do, they say they're doing it for your safety. And that just seems to be like a slippery slope because you can sweep under anything under that rug. Um, and that's where having rule of law and various constraints, at least, try to push back on some of that and, and bound it into, you know, the minimalist form as possible. Yeah. And so, 
the more educated a population is, the more empowered they are financially, the more likely they can say, call out bullshit when they see it versus, um, you know, go along with whatever's happening at the time. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant point. Um, I think this is a good place to stop for today because we're about a little over halfway through this. Well, a little over halfway through the halfway that we planned on getting through today. So more like a quarter. Um, Len, I really enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to continuing it. Do you want to just let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Uh, so I'm at lendalton.com. I, I provide a lot of public articles about financial topics, including some of the stuff we, t- we touched on here. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact. Beautiful. Thank you so much.